The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. What are you as a civil engineering professional or your company risking by not using the right technology on your projects? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with Rory San Miguel, co-founder and CEO at Propeller Aero, which provides cloud-based data visualization and analytics to civil work sites. We'll be talking about how using advanced technology in projects can increase the success of a project and also how engineering managers can advocate for the use of advanced technology on their projects. Before we get started, this is a free show and our sponsors help us keep it free. So now I'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Collier's Engineering and Design. Collier's Engineering and Design is a multidiscipline engineering firm with over 1,800 employees in 63 offices nationwide and growing fast. Collier's Engineering and Design maintains an internal culture that is nurtured through the promotion of integrity, collaboration, and socialization. Their employees enjoy hybrid work environments, continuous career advancement, health and wellness offerings, and programs and projects that have a positive impact on society. Collier's Engineering and Design stays on the cutting edge of technology, and their entrepreneurial approach to expansion provides personal and professional development opportunities across the firm. Leadership's dedication to the well-being of their employees and their families is demonstrated throughout the wide range of benefits and programs available to them. For more information, visit their career page on their website at colliersengineering.com. I also want to mention that we have some courses starting soon for our people leadership, project management, and seller doer business development courses. To enroll your engineering professionals in our courses, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and click on the upcoming training button on the top of the website or give us a call 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Let's jump into today's episode and talk about technology and civil engineering. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest on to the show for today. Rory San Miguel is the co-founder and CEO of Propeller Aero. Rory, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Happy to have you here, Rory. Excited to dive into this exciting topic we're going to get in today. Before we do that, though, maybe you could just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, your company, really what you do on a daily basis. I'm the um, one of the co-founders and CEO of Propeller Aero. We're a, a team that makes technology to help civil contractors primarily and all of the associated sort of employees and workers on those sites track and manage their earth moving. So we build mapping products. We sell drones and software to our customers and they're able to go and map their sites really accurately as often as they need and then interact with all the imagery and 3D models in the browser in a really easy to use way. So that's really our core value proposition today. Propeller's been running for about eight years. So we've now kind of been through a lot of cycles of growth and kind of change. And we're firmly focused on these areas that we're interested in, which is which has been brilliant and, and really kind of doubling down with the dirt world, as we like to say it. And I came out of university really with a three quarters of a mechatronics degree and was spending a lot of time on robotics and, and on drones. And so 
I met Francis and we thought, let's start a business to try and kind of commercialize some of this technology. And, and one thing led to another. We ended up kind of working in this field. That's really the story of Propeller and myself. And, you know, today it's just been a wild ride, much more successful than I ever expected. And I'm sure we'll look back on this moment as well and say that was only the beginning. Yeah, that's kind of a brief history. And before we dive in a little bit to some of the case studies that you've been involved in, like in starting up the business, Rory, obviously when you start a business, you're looking for, you know, needs in an industry and areas where you can kind of make a difference. The civil world right now is growing at a crazy pace, all kinds of infrastructure. Was that something that you and Francis saw when you were thinking about this from the onset? We didn't see the growth necessarily at the onset, but what we did was we essentially called a few construction companies right as we started the business and said, we're really good at drones. How can drones help you? Or how are you already using drones? And they explained to us some workflows that existed. And a lot of it was similar today, right? They, they took drone data and were trying to integrate into their CAD packages or their GIS packages. We thought, all right, great, that makes sense. Is there a problem that we could solve? And they said, make us the API for drone data, make it easy to turn the images from the drones into files that are compatible with our CAD and GIS systems. And we thought, that's us, like that feels right. And Propeller's journey since then has literally been execution towards that problem and, and solution. That's really interesting. And it does sound just from my experience in that world that I could see what, how they could ask for that and what the benefits of that would be to them. So let's talk a little bit about some of the civil construction case studies that Propeller Arrow has been involved in. Can you take us through some of those, Rory? I mean, just to give um, you a picture, we've got most of our customers are in America and then we've got a, a big install base in Australia and New Zealand, sort of Asia Pacific, and then Europe as well. So We've got a bunch of case studies every month now. I think we, we last month we just hit a new record, but more than 7,500 surveys were processed through our platform. So each one of those surveys that we call it internally, I'm sure there's a story behind all of them. Like what are they trying to track or what issue are they trying to defend themselves against? So it's really interesting to kind of dive in with customers and, and start to learn about what's actually going on on site. You know, we get a very high level perspective from out from the data we collect, obviously, but there's always a lot under the hood. And one of the ones that I was going to touch on actually is just a new airport build in Honolulu. So working with Hensel Phelps, I mean, this is all stuff that's publicly available, but we were working with Hensel Phelps and, um, you know, there's a lot of utilities and they had to keep track of where the utilities were. And the sites were actually getting weekly drone flights, which is a huge increase in the, the volume of data that they were producing. As soon as there were conflicts that arose with subcontractors or the utilities themselves, they're able to kind of just work with that and plan and sequence and schedule their project work accordingly. So they've avoided utility strikes, which is great. And they avoided any subcontractor disputes as a result of just having a really up-to-date and regular timeline of what the site actually looks like and, and where it kind of sits from a three-dimensional perspective. That's just a really vanilla kind of example. I mean, right now, one of the biggest infrastructure projects in Australia is being built here in Western Sydney. So we're building a new airport. Again, you know, huge amount of volume moved, lots of parties coming together to assist. It's too big a job for just one contract that is solved. So all of the competitors now need to come and work together and managing the information and managing progress across such a diverse set of companies and fleets. That's really where we thrive. So 
Now, you know, as I'm driving along a highway and I see big yellow pieces of iron and I see surveyors and I see engineers working on a site, like where previously I would just drive past and ignore it. Now I'm like enthralled and I want to kind of dig in and see how far I can help. What I really like about everything you're talking about to me is these are very high leverage concepts, right? Like if you can help a project avoid a utility strikes or get a project done quicker, the types of projects we're talking about, the size of them. I mean, you're talking about obviously millions upon millions of dollars, which is awesome. I mean, I think that if you're trying to solve need in an industry, those are the kind to focus on, of course. And I want to dig a little deeper here on one of the themes so far you've been hitting on, which is really earthwork. That's a huge part of any you know heavy civil project. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how underestimating materials and dirt moving costs can really derail an already expensive civil engineering project. It's kind of core, right? The way we see it, and this is just our opinion, but I'll share it. The way we see it is that these projects are already on really tight timelines of really tight budgets. And everyone is trying to do the right thing. Everyone wants to minimize waste wherever possible. No one wants to kind of sit there and muck around. That's not how the industry works. And one of the limiting factors, right, in actually achieving the project schedule and the project budget simply is the frequency at which you can track progress and the accuracy at which you can track progress. If you're a contractor or working on either side of the equation, essentially, and you're trying to sort of understand where you're at, inaccurate numbers can just simply set you up for failure right? And it's really simple. In many cases, our our customers will be building subdivisions and they'll be pouring concrete pads, right? And if the groundwork hasn't achieved the right elevation, they pour the pads, they've got to come back and kind of tear it up, add the foot of height that they were missing and go again. So at the end of of a project, that final grade elevation is so important. You can't afford to have any underestimated quantities or elevation on the site. For us, that's kind of problem number one. And and really, if you're a customer of ours, and again, we do work with both sides of the equation. If you're a customer of ours, the first thing that you get when you buy a propeller is the ability to survey your site more frequently. And it doesn't take you as long as it used to take. So generally, it's survey teams buying our solution, going and producing a lot of data, and then sending that on to the engineers, sending that on to the estimating team or the project managers, or even to site, right? The foreman and superintendents. That's the first value proposition, just getting more survey data. Like that's kind of unblocked survey data. And then what happens is the survey manager starts allowing all of those other roles to start capturing data themselves and doing all of the analysis themselves. And that's when we start seeing those progress loops speed up. So they're actually able to make those decisions more quickly. So for us, it just comes down to that, right? Help them get more survey data to begin with, then help everybody use the survey data is kind of step two. And ultimately, everyone is working with best intent and we just need good data in order to help power those those decisions that help projects finish on time and on budget. And I really like what you said there in terms of not just getting the data, but being able to use it. We build a lot of custom project management training programs here at EMI for companies and engineers are constantly telling us that they get all this data from their accounting software but they don't know how to use it. They don't get it in the right format. So it doesn't really help them in terms of managing their projects and keeping them on scope, on schedule, on budget. So I do think in terms of technology, yeah, sure, you can get a lot of data from software and different technology pieces, but can you use the data? Is it in a format that you can use it? And how can you organize it? And so that kind of leads me into our next question here. Talk a little bit about tech and tech adoption. In the civil engineering world, There's a lot of software out there. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about all the different types of software out there. 
which again becomes another challenge for people in trying to find software, adopt it, roll it out. Can you talk a little bit about uneven tech adoption pathway for civil engineers and how that looks from your perspective? The technology world likes to give the construction world, kind of brand them as sort of Luddites and slow to adopt technology. It's really commonly referred to, right, that the construction and, and related heavy industries are one of the industries out there still with the lowest tech adoption. And so when we got started, we were like, well, this presents as an opportunity, right? There's a lot of, we know that tech has helped other industries, but it hasn't yet helped this industry. And as we explored it, we were talking to people that were using products and they all said the same thing. Like the products aren't good enough. The products aren't easy enough to use. Exactly what you just talked about, right? The data is kind of, I get indigestion. Like we think about it, it propellers data indigestion. They don't know what to do with it. The technology industry is kind of blamed the construction industry, but I think construction industry is right and has very high standards for what deserves their time and what actually helps rather than hinders. And there are good examples. So I think the iPad is a great example because iPads being used on every single project site, like some of our customers have essentially kitted their whole teams out with iPads and they've moved entirely to digital document formats rather than kind of relying on paper still. In a couple of years, it's almost overnight the success of the iPad in the industry. The iPad's usable. It's easy to use. Battery lasts all day. It's perfect for kind of marking up and scribbling on your documents. It's a great fit with the customer base from my perspective. So companies like Propeller actually need to look at examples like the iPad and say, this is the standard that this industry expects and anything less will get rejected. And that's not their fault. That's your fault. So Propellers takes that pretty seriously and we are trying to build really easy to use products and we're trying to build products that not just technical folks can use because they've had a lot of tools, right? Historically, the office is kitted out with technology. It's the field and it's the kind of connection between the office and the field that we think where the real gap is. So in terms of, to answer your question specifically, how can companies think about tech adoption or how can the industry think about increasing their tech adoption? I actually think go and talk to the people in the field and get their honest take on where the problems are, what software is helping and what software isn't helping. Because yes, the people on site generally can be quite judgmental, right? If the software doesn't help within five minutes, it's out. But I think that level of scrutiny is fairly productive. It's actually really useful. And as, as long as what you're buying and what you're trying to angle for is being used by people in the field, that will get more uptake. But if it's not being used, the whole program is going to get rejected. So listen to the people in the field and actually help solve their, their explicit problems. Let's flip it around a little bit. Let's say I'm a civil engineer. I'm managing projects in my company. I find this great software. I see it online. I want to use it. I have to go through a process to get that software approved. I have to try to get it done. It's a, it becomes a project in itself. Is there any advice that you could give to some civil engineers out there that may have found software that they really want to use? They know it's good. They vetted it out, but they have to kind of advocate for it. What can you tell them? We have a kind of multi-step process, right? We recommend talking to the companies and just making sure that they're getting an accurate picture of what's going on. Of course, you'd want to do some competitive analysis and get a sense of where the other players in the market are and who the other players in the market are. And then I think you want to look for referenceable examples where customers similar to yours in other districts or in other countries, whatever it is, are actually positively using this software. Sometimes when I'm buying software, you know, I'll actually find one of these case studies online and just ping the person on LinkedIn and say, hey, can we chat briefly about this product that you guys are using? They all say yes, of course. Everyone's happy to help all the time, even strangers. You know, three steps. 
get a good picture of the actual product you're looking at, get a sense of where it sits in the competitive landscape, look at those references and make sure that you can find some companies like yours that have had the explicit benefit that you're looking for. And then often there's trials, sometimes there's not. But once you're talking to those companies and really just getting a sense of like, this is the problem we want to solve. Can you show me exactly how I would solve my problem? If yes, if it works, then we're kind of set up for success. If you go into these discussions with a vague understanding of what problem you're trying to solve, it can really drag on, right? You just can't hit the nail on the head. So yeah, being really clear about the problem you're trying to solve and, and engaging. Also from my experience in dealing with engineering professionals and leaders in these companies, to what Rory said about finding references or examples that are out there, if you can really take those and show some quantitative benefits that they've reaped from those projects, earthwork, like we talked about, schedule got done on time or faster. Those are things that I think your manager is not going to be able to just overlook that easily. Because again, we're talking usually about you know multi-million dollar projects. So if there's an improvement that you can make on it and you could show it to them, I think you've got a really good shot with it. Totally. And like, remember that this audience, right? Engineers on projects, they're highly educated customer base. And so when we're thinking about marketing our own software, we want to make sure that it's clear that where the solution shines and where it doesn't shine. Like we're not interested in oversimplifying what we do. And so I would tell companies like, Hey, look, essentially this is where I'm at in my own learning journey. I'm in the field for 10 years. I've seen multiple of these projects come and go. This is my exact problem. I've read up on the space. Like, don't, let's not muck around. Let's get straight into it. And just kind of being confident in your own learnings as a buyer is a really important part of it as well. Taking this conversation just like one step further, Rory, in terms of just innovation in general in the world of civil engineering, I mean, when a company wants to be more innovative, it can't just be senior leadership that's trying to bring something in or the new recent grads that found a cool program. It kind of has to be throughout the company, right? From like recent grads to executives. Can you talk a little bit about embracing innovation at, throughout different levels of a firm? It really depends on the size of the company. You know, we see lots of big contractors or big construction companies or big engineering firms putting out almost like these vision videos of the technology future that they're painting and they're driving towards where everything is connected and they've got one seamless home for all of their data. These components, right, that we hear about a lot. So at the big end of town, we have these big video statements coming out and then sort of turn it around. And a lot of our most innovative customers are those small, tight, productive, often family-run teams where the culture of the organization is such that everyone is welcome to suggest better ways of doing things, right? It's essentially that open, everyone's an owner here, everyone should be thinking about better ways to do things. And those cultures where the ideas come from all corners of the business so we kind of see it all, right? Yeah, we see people trying to throw money at innovation and we see people that are just like genuinely winning with technology, right? They're not even talking about innovation. They're not talking about it. It's just like part of what they do that becomes successful off it and they continue to lean in and kind of encourage that adoption. And from my perspective, I think the latter is where you want to be, right? You want that fundamental culture, like I said, that really kind of draws everybody onto the same page and says to everybody, not with words, but with actions, like we care about this. You don't need to be big. You don't need to be small to achieve that. I think ultimately that sort of culture needs to come from the top. You need to have a few really passionate people in the organization to actually drive some of these projects home. Once you've got a few successful projects, 
that have come through and everyone's seen the benefit, it's that's when the momentum starts to build. So I would be looking for companies to make sure that the, that culture is set right at the beginning, have the right people kind of scattered throughout the organization to actually drive some of the deployments that we're talking about, and then kind of be accepting of mistakes, have budget to spend and like be ready for some things to go wrong. But by and large, if you can do that in a clean way, you know, we see the flywheel start to spin and these companies start leaning in more and more. That's great. And I really like it because it's not about going out there and finding innovation or being innovative. It's just about doing it, just like living it, just happen, making it every part of your organization through your actions, through the things you're doing, through the way you're talking. And that's really seems like the winners. I totally agree. And one problem we see, there can be this anti-pattern with innovation teams because they think they need to be more innovative, right? Or they've got a mandate to be innovative. And that's a bit of a trap, I think, because innovation is a solution. It's not a problem. And you need to have problems that you can solve with innovation. And where the innovation teams get stuck is they're trying to do innovation for innovation's sake. And we hate that. Like that gets very frustrating because it is literally like throwing shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. That's the mandate of those teams, right? Essentially play with all the toys. What we prefer to work with are those innovation teams that are essentially the solution teams to problems that the company is actually facing. And if they can come to us and say, these are the problems, we're the team that's that's set out to solve them, can you help us solve them? That's a wildly different discussion than, hi, we have budget, what can you sell us? I've seen the same thing in the work that we're doing. It's almost like they're trying too hard at that point, and then they're not going to kind of get what they're going for in a sense. But the other problem with it is, of course, you're kind of siloing innovation to one team, when in reality, you want the whole company being clear about what problems it has and thinking about ways innovation can solve. Again, you're working against the grain in regards to getting that culture of everybody thinking like an owner and everybody thinking about those problems really clearly so that they can be solved. Yeah, which prevents what you were talking about before, which is basically the entire organization just embracing it as opposed to one leg of the organization trying to do it, quote unquote, right? It's exactly it. One last question with regard to the technology piece of it. The biggest challenge that we've seen in the civil engineering world, Rory, is recruitment. Finding enough engineering professionals with all the infrastructure investment. We just had a trillion dollar bill here in the US and it's only going to get harder. And so I just wanted to get your perspective on technology and the role it can play. Because to me, if I'm an engineer looking for a new company, cutting edge company, I kind of want to see some of those tools in place there. And some of the things that we just talked about, the fact that they are innovative just by what they're doing on a daily basis. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of how being up on the tech can help you in your recruitment. I think there's kind of two angles, right? There's the practical angle. And there's the sort of attraction angle. And the practical angle is like many industries, right? Construction and and engineering, more and more people are remote, more and more people are working from home. And so fundamentally to unlock the workforce, I think you need good technology solutions to help connect people, connect data, get a good sense of what's going on in the field, et cetera, et cetera. So there's definitely a practical component. If you can be a team that has good systems in place, then you can hire from further afield, right? And you can increase the size of the pool of people you can hire for. So then that's really practical. And then once they're on the payroll, you know, it's easier to kind of keep them up speed and there's project directories with all the data they need and sort of things are just more seamless 
and connected. Then there's the sort of attraction side of things. And I think, put simply, upcoming grads and professionals in the industries want to work on the latest and greatest technology. Like it actually draws people into the industry, especially when you have this amazing landscape of complexity, big machines, huge society changing kind of infrastructure pieces of work and technology kind of connecting everything together. Like the scope of these projects is massive and complex. And so I think if you can go from being on the back foot about the complexity and the challenges to being on the front foot around how those companies are best tackling those challenges, I think young professionals want to be immersed. They want to be saturated. They want to be kind of pushing and learning really quickly. And these projects have a lot of that to offer. Again, provided that technology is there such that those projects are well-connected and that people can be hiring staff from afar. So yeah, the way that is how we think about it, right? There's the practical elements of leveraging technology to solve some of the hiring challenges. And then there's just the attraction and mission that young, you know, late 20s graduates, they're just not going to go and work at a company that's paper powered anymore. They're just going to expect everything to be able to be done on their phone. They're going to expect to be able to work two days a week from home, three days a week from home. Like, This is the reality. So we need to make that work. All right. So we covered a lot of interesting kind of tech and innovation ideas and thought processes here around civil engineering. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to come back and wrap up with Rory with a couple of last career-related questions. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. Now it's time for our Civil Engineering Hot Seat segment. But before we jump in here, I'd like to recognize our other sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you are always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. All right, we're back with Rory San Miguel, co-founder and CEO of Propeller Aero. We talked a lot about some interesting aspects of tech and civil engineering, but now we are going to put Rory on the hot seat here with a couple of last career-related questions. Ready, Rory? Sure. So do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day, Rory, maybe a, a morning or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently on a daily basis that has contributed to your success? So I start the day really early because we've got a lot of people in the US now in our team. So I'm in Sydney here and, and my mornings are their afternoon. So that's when it has to happen. That being said, before I get onto the computer, get downstairs, make myself a coffee, take the dog outside for a minute and just kind of wake up properly and soak it in. So I think just taking a minute to start of the day, critical. In the last month or so, I've been exercising as well in the mornings before work, but that's been great. I'm not going to say I've been doing it for the last eight years consistently. For anyone that, that is getting out of bed early to do that, I come back feeling absolutely ready for the day. Is there a book, maybe maybe related to tech since that's what we've been talking about, but 
maybe a book that you might recommend if someone wants to learn a little bit more about, I mean, it could be anything in business or life, quite frankly, but I just thought maybe you'd have something on tech too, since we've talked about it so much. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of great books, of course, written about building technology companies. One that stands out for me is a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And it's by a guy called Ben Horowitz, who's now an investor in, in San Francisco. And the thing I like about that book is it kind of gives you perspective and paints a picture of like resilience, really. It takes away all of your fragility. It says essentially everything's busted and everything's hard and just get used to it. And kind of that perspective setting I found really useful in helping calibrate my own kind of reactions to things. Next question here, just in your career so far to date, whether you've had manager that you've worked for, or you've seen kind of manager interactions with the teams that they work, that they lead, what have you found in your own experiences makes successful managers or team leaders, like the characteristics, the traits that you've seen in them? What can you share with us on that? I think the number one trait of a great manager is to be a great role model for their team. Again, like same point as before, the actions speak so loudly. And so I really think that role modeling and just modeling great behavior and, and what it means to have initiative and to help your colleagues and to kind of not complain, to be gracious or sort of to share when someone else has helped you and to be appreciative of that. These are all things that I just think a manager that does it is going to be in such a good position to get their teams to do it as well. So that is definitely my favorite trait. And my best managers have all been great role models. Our last question that we've got for you here, Rory, we call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. So based on everything you've worked now in civil uh, construction, you've worked with a lot of these firms, you've seen a lot of projects. If you were to get into an elevator, let's say with an up and coming civil engineer, and you had 30 to 40 seconds with that person, what career advice would you give them about kind of diving into the world of civil engineering? Don't underestimate the people in the field. Like listen to the people in the field. Listen to the people on job sites. I feel like every now and then you sense this tension between the office and the field and that the engineers, you know, the white collar, field blue collar, a little bit of classes stuff going on there. And I think really at the end of the day, the people in the field know what's up. They know where the problems are. They're the people that are going to kind of make the difference. Double down on people in the field. Really listen to them. They're not, they're plugged in, they're intelligent. They all, that's where a lot of the insights come from. And I would kind of double down on that and say, request time in the field if you can get it when you're younger. Be real. Be on the ground. That's one of the biggest setbacks in today's world that I've seen is that when I started, I started as a surveyor. Luckily, I was able to be in the field and see sites being built. Engineers don't always get that today. So if you don't per se have a field job, you could still get out there, ask to go on site visits and, and things like that. That's going to make your life easier. And quite frankly, you're going to be a better designer in the office because you're going to know what's going on out there. Like Rory said, you have to be in touch with the field. So great advice. So before we let you go, Rory, I know the website is propellerarrow.com. Is that the best place that our listeners can go to kind of find out everything? That is, yep. Or just search propeller drone surveys in Google. All right, Rory, thanks so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Anthony. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rory today. Understanding technology is key to being successful as a civil engineer or as a civil engineering company in today's world, period. And you'll probably see some more tech-related episodes coming up here in the next three to six months. 
Remember, you can find the show notes for all of our episodes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in each episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And remember, you could check out our People Leadership, Project Management, and Seller Doer Business Development courses on our website at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Just click on the upcoming training button on the top of the site or give us a call, 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.